<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions, world headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. Let's talk about animals in horror movies. It used to be the cat scare. Tension would be built, putting the audience into a heightened state of suspense, and suddenly a cat would jump out of the wastebasket or dumpster and scare the bejesus out of the cast and hopefully the audience. Everyone would laugh and heave a sigh of relief, and then, bang, the real scare would happen. It's the cheapest unearned scare possible, and I confess to having pulled it myself in the opening scene of Sleepwalkers almost 30 years ago. But now, it's the dog. Not any dog, but the cutest, sweetest, most charming, and lovable dog you can imagine. If such an animal shows up early in a horror movie, you can bet the farm that it will die horribly by the end of Act Two. The deal is that you make the audience love this furry creature so much that you want him for yourself. And then, and then, Scruffy gets shredded. It's time to put that one to bed, isn't it? I think the only genre film I've seen in recent years that doesn't do that is The Wonderful Love and Monsters, which makes us love that dog and embrace his survival. It's an easy way to disturb an audience, but is it any way to create fear and tension? Can we put a stake in the heart of the lovable dog getting killed? Uh, I'm not so sure that sounds the way I intended it. And while we're on the subject, another easy gross out is to set a scene in an abattoir or in some setting where actual animals, not latex and fake fur movie animals, are slaughtered or dismembered in the search for truth. Mangle a human corpse in a movie, and I'm fine. I know it's not real, no matter how engrossed in the film I am. But slaughter an animal for an audience's so-called entertainment is just repellent, and not in any good way. It's just cheap and exploitive and cruel. There, I've said it. Speaking of animals and horror movies, our guest Adam Wingard has concocted new iterations of two of our favorite monster beasts in Godzilla vs. Kong. Let's talk with him about this transition from micro-budget independent festival favorites to big-budget monster mashes. Severin Films, one of the very best creators of special edition Blu-rays, presents the Euro Crypt of Christopher Lee 8 Blu-ray box set featuring new scans of 1960s classics Castle of the Living Dead, Crypt of the Vampire, Sherlock Holmes and the Deadly Necklace, Torture Chamber of Dr. Sadism, The Long Lost Challenge the Devil, and the never-aired anthology series Theater Macabre hosted by Lee, plus a brand new 88-page book by Jonathan Rigby. Pre-order now at severin-films.com. That's S-E-V-E-R-I-N-Films.com. And follow Severin Films on social media for details of their forthcoming releases, 
including the Dungeon of Andy Milligan box set, UHD debuts of Alex de la Iglesia's Day of the Beast and Perdita Durango, Hodorowski's Santa Sangre, new special editions of Grizzly, Day of the Animals, Nosferatu in Venice, and more from Severin Films. It's a special company doing very special editions, and you better check them out. So, Adam, welcome. You know, it's really great to be here and talk to you. And I, I actually have to give you credit. Um, you you were sort of my uh, introduction into horror back in the day. And um, I actually have my copy here with me of the uh, the Shining miniseries. This also kind of dates me because, uh, um, uh, you know, I think I was maybe like 15 or so when this came <laughs> out on TV. And I was, I'm, I'm a late bloomer to horror films. I, I didn't, I was too afraid of them um as a kid you know like I, I i was just i my friends were always talking about the nightmare and elm street movies and things growing up and um and it wasn't until the year that the that that you dropped the shining miniseries that i remember being, yeah. yeah i remember dipping my toe in because i the thing that like intrigued me about it right is because it was it was all over the place i remember people were talking about it constantly on tv and stuff i was very aware of it and i remember there was this gorgeous TV guide cover that was okay. like a painting. Do you remember? Bernie that? Wrightson. Bernie Wrightson did it. Yeah, it's so good. I mean, I, I've always like looked, I, I, I would love to find like a, just a, a poster with like no text on it of just that, that image. Cause it's so cool. It's him like limping away from the overlook and, you know, there's snow everywhere. And I think he had the, the croquet mallet, right. And, uh, you know, good memory. Good memory. But, yeah, no, well, it stuck with me. And, and the reason so is because it was really, I mean, and I am not exaggerating at all. The, the, the first real horror movie experience I had was with this miniseries. And it was, um, it was uh, the, I just happened, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, it's playing on TV, you know, uh, you know, you, you know, this is back in the day, obviously, when you have no control over the TV, it's just going to come on at what time it's going to come on. And I remember knowing peripherally that it was going to come on. I missed the first episode initially and the second episode was on. Right. Wow. And I remember being like, well, I should just kind of just check and see what this thing's all about. And I was home alone and I just happened, I shit you not, when I turned it on, it happened to be at the room 217 scene. Uh -huh. And it's, you know, it, it's Danny approaching the, the shower and, um, and, and the big reveal. And, and I turned it off right after that because I was so traumatized from seeing that, that it set me back another couple years on horror. I didn't really get into horror for another about two years after that because I was so afraid of that. Every time I went to the, to the uh, bathroom and the shower curtain was pulled, I had to always pull it back. And it was just, it was so, so effective. And, you know, and I revisited this, I revisit this pretty frequently because I'm a big fan of the Stephen King book. I mean, the actual, uh, the Kubrick movie is like my favorite film, but I love what you did with this because it really, it pays like total homage to everything that Stephen King was going for. And, and, you know, so I was able to track the, the rest of the miniseries down, even though I didn't see it when it first came on live. I had some friends of mine who had, you know, had VHS tapes of it. And I was just so excited because I, I I ended up reading the Stephen King books. And I got really obsessed with and The Shining ended up being my favorite book. And so I was so pleased when I saw 
you know, the miniseries that it, it did all the scenes that I wanted to see in the Kubrick film, because when I first saw the Kubrick movie, I actually hated it, even though now it's my favorite movie. I just hated it because it wasn't what the book was. So, you know, I, I have a lot uh, to thank you for in terms of, you know, kind of setting me off on, on, on this journey, sort of. <laughs> wow, that's the nicest compliment I've ever had. And my wife, who played the woman in 217, will also appreciate that a lot. Oh my God, that's amazing. I didn't realize that. Yeah, she's very scary. She's like grotesque. And uh, yeah, yeah. I revisited it again last year during the pandemic. I sat down and, you know, there's plenty of downtime. So, uh, you know, I put them on and uh, I had a, I had a great time watching it again. You know, I actually, I love, I love Steven Weber actually in the film. You know, I think he did a really good job. He really lives up to what I think Stephen King was really going for in the book. Yeah, it was really great that King wrote the script himself and and uh, he was around for most of the shoot as well. And he just was great cameo, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but mainly as a cheerleader and all. But well, let's talk about how you did get into the world of horror because it has become your career. Mm -hmm. And as a late bloomer who started at 13, <laughs> what was life like as a kid in Oak Ridge, Tennessee? And did you have any imagination about the idea of becoming a filmmaker in Hollywood? Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I grew up in um, or I was born in uh, Oak Ridge, which is funny because that's also the birthplace of the atomic bomb. And, uh, you know, I uh, I um, I ended up uh, like my parents, I think they, they moved out of there when I was, you know, probably less than one year old. You know, I, I and and so I spent the majority of my life up until 2011 living in Alabama. And so that was really my um uh, my upbringing was there. And, uh, you know, like for me, like the, the, the inspirations, uh, for wanting to be a filmmaker started extremely early, early. And, and they were, they were always like big, you know, Hollywood sci-fi spectacle films, you know, like I was the star Wars movies, the alien films, you know, I always loved the Indiana Jones movies. All those things were the, the ghostbuster movies. Those were the films that really, you know, suck me into cinema and and I remember the exact moment when when I decided that I wanted to be a filmmaker um I remember I was uh in in my living room this was like 1989 or so and um my parents had kind of figured out that I don't know where they were getting them from but they would get these um refrigerator boxes you know and I had like three brothers and we had all these toys, but we didn't even care about the toys. When they had these refrigerator boxes, these were like our absolute, you know, obsession, you know, because you can totally fit all three of your brothers in there and you can create <laughs> these little, you know, palaces. You can bring all your toys in there. And it was just so fun. It was like a little cave in our house. And and I remember um, sitting in this box watching um, uh, trailers come on for Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Wow. And I was just so obsessed with that movie. I, I had so much expectation uh, for that film. And I remember after this trailer ended, and it might have been uh, like a trailer that was sort of also like a behind the scenes thing or something, because I remember asking my mom, um, you know, who, who's the person who decides where they put the camera? Is it a director or a producer? And I remember my mom saying, well, I'm not sure. I think it's a producer. And I said, well, I want to be a producer when I grow up, you know? <laughs> and, you know, and of course, years later, I figured out that that wasn't the case. But uh, but that was the moment where, you know, I remember thinking, like, I definitely want to want to do film. And, um, you know, and, and I just kind of went from there. <laughs> 
Well, your opportunities, you made your own opportunities. You made movies for like a couple thousand bucks, uh, you know, Homesick and Pop Skull. Mm -hmm. But tell us about how the world of film festivals played such an important role in your career, because you can do these tiny movies and find an audience for them if they're special enough to get programmed. Well, I, I think that's 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 how I ended up being so enamored with horror films, because, I, you know, I, my inspirations really came from the achie achievability of it, I think, you know, like I was always like like interested, but too scared, you know, but I think it was really through like reading those Stephen King novels and things that I started be having more of a concrete interest in horror. And then, uh, you know, and I had a friend growing up in high school who started kind of introducing me a little bit here and there towards the end of high school to like, um, I remember he had dead alive, you know, yeah. and I remember him always being obsessed with the movie, which he could never remember the title, but he was like, it's this movie where this guy puts on a pair of sunglasses and he can see aliens. And yeah. I'm like, that can't really not possibly be a real movie. What are you talking about? You know? <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, then of course it's they live, you know, and, and which is one of my favorite movies of all time now. And, um, you know, so it, you know, but it was the inspirational factor of horror films that really sucked me in, in addition to just them being, you know, enjoying them so much. And what I mean by that is that as a young filmmaker, when you don't have the resources uh, to make a movie and you don't have all the big actors and the effects and things like what 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 can you do to get your foot in the door? Because it's a total catch 22 thing. You know, you need something to prove that you can do what you can do. But, you know you have to have the resources to do it in, in film. But horror is one of those things where you don't need big actors. You don't need a lot of stuff. You know, you just need to be creative and there's a built-in audience for it. People are interested even in low budget horror movies. And so that's sort of when, when I started realizing that, um, that's when my focus started really heading in that direction. And I think the big turning point for me was when um, in terms of me 100% directing my energy towards horror was uh, when uh, Gore Verbinski put out the Ring remake. Um, mm. I can't remember what year that was, if that was 2002 or so. Around. And I remember when that came out, I was just, I love the style of it, you know, because I always loved really stylized movies. I was already into really experimental films. And initially I thought, oh, that's going to be my end, you know, because I really like movies like Pi and things like that. And um, Tokyo Fist, you know, I loved a lot of anime and Japanese films, but I really like stylized kind of experimental movies. But when I saw the Ring remake, I was just like, this, this has everything I want and it's a horror film. And it kind of just... It was just like one of these like kind of switch turns on type of things where you're like, wait a minute, I can do everything I want in the context of horror and um, and I can do it right now. And so that's when I started gearing towards that direction. And well, the in, in the world of horror, particularly in a movie like The Ring, it's for grownups. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it is an adult drama that's also scary as shit. Mm -hmm. And and to be able to combine those things, you know, I think it takes a lot more talent to make a really good horror movie than to make a really good drama because it's no, got to be a really good drama first. Right. Yeah. And people are, li are willing to give more credit to a drama just for being a drama than they are with a horror film. With a horror film, they everybody always starts in a place where they want to um 
think that they're smarter than a horror movie, right? And, I, and honestly, you deal with the same stuff with, with monster movies. No matter what, the starting place for a lot of people is a big, dumb Hollywood uh, monster movie, which is fine to think. I'm sure I've referred to them similarly, but there's nothing dumb about the process of trying to figure out and break one of these movies. But, um, you know, like, yeah, when it comes to like, horror it's one of those things where like i remember watching i can't remember which horror movie it was it was it was some movie in the theaters in alabama and i remember it was it was the moment where i realized kind of what you're saying uh is is 100% true in terms of how hard it is to make a horror film and make it an effective drama I was watching some horror movie in the theater and it just totally had the audience on the edge of their seat. I remember people were like scared out of their minds. They were yelling, they were having a blast. And then as soon as the movie rolled, the the kids in front of me stood up who were obviously so engaged and taken with the movie. The first thing they said was like, man, that was so stupid. You know, it's just like, <laughs> really? Do you really? I, I was just like, you really think that? Like, it, it was almost like they were mad that they felt like the movie you know, uh, wasn't stupid, you know, it's like they had to say that because they wanted to feel smarter than, you know, the experience that they didn't have something pulled over them or they weren't manipulated, you know. Um, but yeah, going back to the film festival thing, you know, that, uh, you know, like that's, that's really where the starting point was for me because, you know, my career never, it was never one of those things where, um, you know, I had a big film festival debut and then, you know, Hollywood came knocking on my door and then I suddenly was thrust into a $200 million movie. It was like very slow progression over the years. Like you mentioned, Homesick was the very first movie I did right out of film school. It was a total disaster. Um, <laughs> you know, Evan Katz, you know, who, who's gone on to do cheap thrills. I'm sure you know Evan. Oh, love um, it. You know, well, you know, Evan and I went to film school together and um, and he actually lived at my house for about a year uh, right out of film school and we made homesick and boy, it was it was awful. I mean, like we really just <laughs> had no idea what we were doing. Um, we wasted our parents' money. And so much for film school, right? Yeah. Well, exactly. You know, I mean, both of us are kind of not great film students. I think we're the type of people who need to apply. And when we actually applied, that's when we realized how in over our heads we were. <laughs> so it was kind of back to the drawing board for me at that point. And that's when I said, you know what? I need to understand everything about film because here I am as a young director and I got like, we didn't really have a crew. We had like two or three guys, but they're all more experienced than me and they're much older than me. And, you know, and so I felt like they kind of walked all over me and it was because I couldn't concretely say, you're wrong when you tell me that this is gonna take, you know, this long to set up this shot, you know? or whatever it is. And, and so I felt like I needed that firsthand experience. And I was always a big fan of uh, Robert Rodriguez. Oh yeah. And, uh, El Mariachi and his book rebel yeah. without a, um, a crew that was like my Bible, you know, in high school. And so, you know, I thought I need to go back to the Robert Rodriguez way. I need to get down and dirty and I need to figure out how to do things on my own. I need to learn to edit, to shoot, you know, everything. And, and that's when I did pop skull. And, right. You were a writer, producer, editor, director of photography and director. Yeah. I, I did literally everything on that film. And, um, and it was, it was the most profound experience of my entire life to a certain degree, making that movie. It took two years to do it. You know, we had no money. 
And the way that we did it is I found um, a friend of mine, this kid Lane Hughes um, out in Alabama. He was writing for a zine and somehow he'd heard about Homesick, which had just played at the local film festival. And he interviewed me. And funny enough, like when I met him for this interview, the whole thing just ended up being him talking about this girl that had just dumped him. Right. And um, <laughs> and I was so kind of charmed by that. I was just it was adorable. And and then he started telling me all these ghost stories, you know, and I was interested in that because I grew up also. And this is probably why I was so afraid of watching horror films, but I grew up in a house that was built in the 1800s and my backyard was literally a um, civil war cemetery oh um God. yeah i guess i should have mentioned that earlier <laughs> um that's a good kickoff point yeah yeah exactly um but it's it's one of those things that just doesn't come up often. i've actually seen a ghost in this house too i mean i literally uh, you know i woke up in the middle of the night one night i have like two ghost stories if you want to hear it or i can finish this article well, do um, pop and then let's hear the ghost. Okay, story. well, yeah, just don't let me forget because I'll circle back around because I never get a chance to tell these ghost stories and I love doing oh, it. Oh, good. Um, so, that's, <laughs> that's why we're here, Adam. <laughs> yes. No, I see everything behind you. It tells me that that's the direction that we should go in, you know. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so, you know, when it came to uh, Popsicle, here I am with this kid. You know, he's he doesn't have a life. I don't have a life either. I know that I'm trying to figure out how to make a movie. And I'm like, wait, this is perfect. What I need is I need somebody who has as much downtime as I do. And he's got all these interesting stories, you know, so I made a movie kind of loosely about him. He's living in a haunted house. Um, he's having um, relationship problems, you know, he's been dumped and he's depressed and, and he's also on uh, cough medicine, you know? And so, you know, here I am like my whole career in a weird roundabout way to kind of summarize it is, 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 the, the kickoff point was really because of Robitussin and Corseed and Cold and Cough tablets because <laughs> the movie's about this kid. He's like tripping on Corseed and Cold and Cough tablets and, um, and he's seeing ghosts and stuff. And here I am shooting all this footage for it. And it's very, there's not really a structured script. We're just kind of shooting a lot of stuff, right? And after about six months of shooting, I started editing it together and I showed some friends of mine. And... Um, and I just had like 20 minutes edited and stuff. And I just remember the reaction was so underwhelmed. They just, you know, just, they, you know, they just seemed like it was not good. You know, I just could tell. And I was really depressed that night. And I thought, well, maybe part of the problem is, is like, you know, you know, I, I've never even smoked weed. I don't drink. I don't do any drugs. I was like, maybe I don't understand what this Robitussin thing is that he's <laughs> doing in the movie. And so I called him up. I said, all right, like, what, how does this work? Like, you, you drink a bottle of Robitussin. It's not going to kill you, right? And so he tells me how it is. And I go on all these websites. I look it up. I'm like, okay, I don't think it's going to kill me. It's kind of dangerous, but it's not terribly dangerous. And so I go home. I, uh, I drink a bottle of Robitussin by myself. And I start tripping for the first time in my life. And, you know, you think, okay, it's Robitussin. What's that really going to do? And it is a very psychedelic trip, let me tell you. And <laughs> so I sat down and I, on Robitussin, um, I decided, wow, now that I'm in the zone and I kind of understand what this movie is, what's going on in it, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to go and I'm going to watch this footage that I just showed my friends, you know, while I'm high on Robitussin. And so I put the footage on and the first three to five minutes felt like they lasted 200 years. And I had to, and I just turned it off and I was like, this is a disaster. Like, and I totally, for the first time ever was kind of like 
self-aware thanks to Robitussin, you know? So the plan that we concocted was we're going to get together and, uh, you know, a couple times a week and we're going to, you know, me and Lane, we're going to drink Robitussin and we're going to come up with ideas for the movie. We're going to go shoot the ideas, drink more Robitussin and then <laughs> watch the edits that we've put together and make sure that it's following the, the, the approved Robitussin sort of uh, uh, structure, you know. Now you're an alcoholic. <laughs> just for Robitussin, you know, like I'm just I'm sitting here drinking my bottle now. Um <laughs> Uh, but 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 what it, what it ended up being was that we we designed the movie around that like instead of 3D glasses if you're watching the film the the, the right way to watch it would be instead of 3D glasses replace that with a bottle of Robitussin and you're having the actual experience but even if you're not doing that what it did is it created a really insane movie a really bizarre film and 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 film festivals were immediately super interested because it was like who is this guy making this film for no money it's got well, you had to serve the bottles at the screenings everybody yeah, well, needed a bottle. We, we did have one screening where like they they had like kind of fake pills and stuff that they gave out you know like sugar <laughs> pills for fun but uh um yeah no i mean but you know the movie what it, what it ended up doing is it just awakened this sort of like free-flowing kind of vibe for me as a filmmaker and um and so weirdly in a roundabout way like i'm making a big budget hollywood movie because of robo tripping but um <laughs> Um, but and actually, there's an homage to 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 the Pop Skull in uh, Godzilla versus Kong. There's a sequence where the characters are flying in the Hollow Earth, and it's a very stroby, crazy sequence. And and it, 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 to me, it was it was inspired by the some of the tripping scenes that I created in uh, in, in Pop Skull. Interesting. It, it reminded me of 2001, the slit scanning sequence. Well, it was it was it was kind of a combination of those two things because you know I, I'm I'm such a big Stanley Kubrick fan um, that I've always wanted to do a sequence where characters have like sort of their version of the Stargate thing and you know yeah. if I was left to my own devices I probably would have made that sequence like five minutes long but uh, <laughs> you know I was I was happy that I was able to get a good like 20 25 seconds in the film of them flying in the Hollow Earth it's one of my favorite parts of the film actually <laughs> yeah it's cool um, so those two films got some festival play and then uh, you worked with uh, Joe Swanberg, who was kind of king of mumblecore at the time, yeah. And so on autoerotica, tell me, uh, tell me that how that came about and how you worked together in that regard, because you both directed it. That's right. Yeah. Well, you know, after Pop Skull was kind of put into the festival world, I. Um, I, I was able to get a manager and an agent. I'm actually still with the same manager to this day, but, um, and I, and for the first time ever that got me like going on all these like Hollywood general meetings and stuff, but nothing really came of it, you know? And so here I am still in Alabama, you know, back to square one. And um, I'm at a film festival. I, I was still making short films during all this time, you know, and, uh, and I met Joe Swanberg at a festival and, you know, I, I just told him, you know, uh, I kind of met him right after one of his screenings and I said, look, you know, I love your films. And if you ever need, you know, somebody to shoot one of your movies for you, I'd love to, to help out, you know, because I knew that he had seen Popskull and Popskull has similar sensibilities. Like you mentioned, Mumblecore. Uh, similarly, Popskull didn't have a script, so it was all improvisational, even though it's much more stylized than a lot of the Mumblecore films. It, it actually weirdly kind of synced up to that movement kind of in a way. Mm. 
And so, you know, and I think Joe's reaction when I told him that was, you know, like, well, you know, I do usually shoot my movies myself, but thanks anyways. And, but weirdly that turned, you know, somehow that turned into, uh, I guess he remembered it and we, we, we ended up kind of working together. And um, I think it actually started first, he came on as an actor for me on uh, A Horrible Way to Die. And so we shot a horrible way to die. And then, um, and, and Joe was in this weird period at, at that point where he ended up shooting like, I don't know, like 10 movies in one year. And, 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 and he actually gave me credit for that because we also did a short film. I should mention before a horrible way to die, um, that we shot in literally a day and a half. And I think what he realized is that, Oh wait, there's a way to do these things really quickly. And then I can just put them together. So basically we could shoot a movie in six days. So I think that was kind of the turning point now that I think about it. And so right after horrible way to die, before I even went back to go edit, I went straight to Chicago and I shot a movie for him and, um, and then went home and then subsequently we just started, I would shoot all these movies for him, you know, and, and his movies are filled with nudity and stuff. So that was a crazy experience. You know, you're on set and there's all these naked people and stuff and um, you know, and uh, I've found it to be very embarrassing and then it turns boring. Yeah. There is a mundaneness to it because it's not sexy at all when you're, when you're shooting this stuff. And, and I've even acted in, 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 in sex scenes in some of his movies and it's the least sexy thing on the planet. And it's really, it's pretty funny, honestly, but, um, uh, but yeah, autoerotic came up because I think it was like, you know, during this period where we were just really prolific, I, I just had this idea. I was like, what if we do these kind of, um, you know, short films, you know, sort of themed around, you know, masturbation and they'll be just kind of funny. And um, it, it was not a profound project and people rejected it outright, I will say. But there's some there's some parts in there that I, I, I really like, you know, because we kind of even though we're kind of credited as directing uh, the movie together, really, it was like he directed two segments and I directed two. And, you know, the one I directed was uh, was kind of more or less like based around that movie or that comic book. Uh, click, I think it was called. Um, mm-hmm. It was like an erotic comic that I'd seen. And um, anyways, but uh, yeah, so, so we did that. And then, and then I think that that was kind of the end of that journey. And then your next came up um, right after. Yeah. So now you're working with actors who are familiar, mm-hmm. you're doing an actual movie that's going to come out in theaters. And so tell me about how that progression felt. Did you feel it as a big step for you from festival movies to a commercial release? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, where I was at at a filmmaker at this point is everything I was doing was just so experimental. And I realized, you know, especially when I was reading the reviews of A Horrible Way to Die, I I realized that some of the experimental things I was doing were obviously, you know, just a way to be able to get the movie in the can and the time we had and, and, and to make up for the fact that, you know, sometimes if you if you can't do things the normal way, if you do something in, in a weird way, it kind of, it, it kind of distracts from the fact that you, you know, everything's just really cheap, you know? And, um, and, and so I, I started realizing that I was like, you know, I, I'm doing all this experimental stuff and it's, it's getting less and less sincere because I'm really just doing it to cover up the fact that we don't have the money for stuff. And I need to start learning how to make real movies, you know, like, and what I mean by real, I mean like using conventional filmmaking techniques. Right. Narrative storytelling. Exactly. Things that I, I needed to learn how to make a movie that was accessible by normal people, not just people who go to film festivals and watch weird movies. Right. 
And so that was the experiment. I, I went to Simon and I said, listen, the only horror movies right now that I that, that are scaring me anymore are home invasion films, like the Strangers had just come out. And I was terrified of that movie. I mean, being from Alabama, it's very relatable. The idea of being in the middle of nowhere, somebody break into your house. So I was very scared of that concept. And so I said, let's do a home invasion movie and let's try to do it. You know, let's try to make a real movie, you know. And so Simon wrote the script super fast. He told me the name. He's like, it's going to be called You're Next. He just had it in his head. And I thought, that's a great catchy title. We're off to a good start. I read the script, loved it. And uh, we went from there. And fortunately, from doing all those movies, um, especially Horrible Way to Die, which had just played at Toronto the year before, um, that caught the attention of uh, Keith and Jess Calder, you know, who are really well-known producers. They did uh, Night in Miami, I think it's the name of the film, um, right. just recently. Right, the um, it's up for an Oscar, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and so they, uh, they approached us and they thought, you know, that we had a lot of potential, me and Simon. And they wanted to kind of work with us uh, on something. And it turned out that they, at that point, they'd been doing a lot of um, dramas and things. Uh, the Wackness was one of their last movies that they'd done. And, but they wanted to get into the genre space. They wanted to do horror movies. And, uh, and, and so it, it just kind of synced up. And I think they were also looking, what's the cheapest movie that we could make as well, you know? And we're like, we're your guys, you know? <laughs> and... You know, but for me at the time, it was a huge step up because A Hard Way to Die was $70,000. And that was by that, that felt like I was getting away with murder, you know, getting that budget. Um, I even remember sitting outside of Simon's house and my DP drove in from Alabama. And I remember being like, can you believe that, that we have tricked people into giving us $70,000 to make a motion picture, you know? And, and it was a similar feeling on your next. It was like, now we have half a million dollars, you know, we can do whatever we want you know, like we've. And you we've actually get paid. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We can actually have a crew um, and all those kind of things. As a matter of fact, on the first day on your next, I'll never forget like my DP, who was also uh, a young filmmaker who had never done um, a movie before. Like I hired him specifically off of a short film that he had done and it was very low budget. Um, but uh, I remember the very first day on set, like there's, you know, we go in there and we set up the shot and there's just all these people watching us and we say, okay, we're going to do the shot here. And then all these people started running around and moving things and things started getting rolled into the room and lights starting to get stuff. I remember he and I like walked into the other room, but we were kind of crouched down in the corner. And we're like, what do we do now? Like what? <laughs> it was really like, it was that like we, we had no experience in that. We're getting time. away with making a real movie and we're not sure to how, how to handle it. No, it really was like that, you know? And, um, and so, yeah. So your next was, was, was that, and it was, it was at that time, that was the really the, the hardest experience I ever had making a film because, you know, when you're doing things the right way, you know, it, it just takes a lot of time and, and and uh, there's just so many moving parts, and you, you can't just skip over it. You gotta, you know, you gotta really get it. You gotta really light it, and all those kind of things. And um, uh, but but we made it through, and um, and then that one premiered at uh, Toronto again the next year, and and that's what really like kicked off the career. I was you know from that point on, you know, I was finally you know um, you know able to work as a full time filmmaker. Well, it's fascinating to track your career because each of the films you make seems to be a step up the ladder and it it's a bigger budget each time 
Next, you did The Guest, which is one of my favorites of yours with Dan Stevens. Really terrific uh, thriller that's a little bit bigger than it was before. Mm -hmm. Dan Stevens being a more familiar actor to the mainstream. Uh, And and then it starts the franchises. You've Mm -hmm. got uh, uh, Blair Witch. You did the next Blair Witch. And then now Death Note was controversial. This mm-hmm. was a big budget for you. Probably this had to be your biggest budget by far at that. By far, point. yeah. And so this is like a fifty million dollar movie. It was based closer on- to thirty, yeah, but it was still, yeah, it was still quite because everything else was about uh, the highest at that point. I think was Blair Witch was five and a half million. I think. Right. So you're doing thirty million dollars. They're talking about it with bigger movie numbers at the time. I recall. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they also pull that up, don't they? <laughs> yeah. But there's a series of Japanese mangas it was based on and uh, several of the Japanese movie adaptations. Mm -hmm. This was the first American adaptation for Netflix, which was at that time a big production for Netflix. So you were kind of there at a new stage for Netflix, taking on something that had been a big foreign success in Japan, but Mm -hmm. an unknown quantity in the U.S., except for the geeks, you know, the, the ones, <laughs> the Death Note geeks. So tell mm-hmm. me about going into a franchise, because we'll get into later with more deep, deeply into a giant franchise, yeah. but about the sense of responsibility and, and how you're trying to please so many masters because you're not the first. Well, Death Note is definitely a trial by fire experience uh, for me because the the fan base is 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 uh, it's complicated. <laughs> um, I, I had no idea what I was walking into. I'll be very honest with you. You know, like um, I'm you know I'm a big um, I'm a big anime fan. Like you know, growing up, Ninja Scroll was always one of my favorite films. Uh, Akira, obviously. Yeah. You know, I I you know like I. I I grew up on anime. That was like my, my bread and butter. And so here I am, you know, after your next has come out and the guest, and I'm finally in a place where, you know, my career is kind of taking off, but it, you know, it's, it, it's still, it, it's not like projects are just being thrown at me. Right. And so one day your um, death note shows up and it's at Warner brothers originally. Um, and it almost got made at Warner Brothers, but at the last minute they dumped it, and that's when um, Netflix picked it up, right? But um, I read the script, and my brother had always told me, my younger brother Chris, uh, he had always told me that if I was ever going to adapt something into a movie, I should adapt Death Note. And I wasn't very familiar with Death Note, I'll be honest with you. Um, and but I read the script, and I thought, well, this is really fun. This has a lot of potential. And I immediately had sort of an idea of what I would want to do with it. And it was a little different than it was on the page. And I read the manga and I thought, well, you know, there's all these like de- there's the Death Note anime series. There's the, the, the manga series. And then there's the, the movies that exist. And I thought, you know what, this has been so well covered. You know, we need to do something different. And, you know, and that's a fateful idea because it turns out that. You know, when you're doing a property and it's called the property name, people expect the property. You know what I mean? They want when you call a movie Death Note and you call your lead character Light, even though he has a last name in this film that's different, they are expecting Death Note. And it better be that. And and the Death Note fans are very serious. And you know, and 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 okay, so this is the first time I've really talked about Death Note since since it was made. And even when it was 
doing the rounds, it was very hard to talk about. And, you know, and we got mixed up in a lot of controversy. There was the whole whitewashing thing, um, which was really just a misunderstanding. I think um, there was never any attempt to try to not make this, you know, Asian centric or whatever. But the fact of the matter was, is that because of the original Death Note movies, I thought, okay, if we're going to do this American remake, we need to do something totally different, sort of, you know, it's got the vibe of Death Note, but we're going to kind of do our own thing with a different tone. And obviously the characters are very, very different aside from Ryuk. Um, and, uh, and in retrospect, that was the wrong choice, I think for the fan base. And, and, but the, the, but when I knew that things were gonna be difficult was right away, right? Because before things were even far down the road, this is when I think it was still at Warner Brothers, uh, they announced that I was going to direct Death Note. And the immediate reaction from the fan base was, pure furious anger they knew nothing about the film but they were just furious because they just knew that hollywood was gonna fuck this up you know and i'm like you know and they're talking about hollywood and all this stuff i'm like wait i'm not hollywood what, what are you talking about like you know like just like you know like you know, five years ago i was living off of a hundred dollar coupons for you know mcdonald's and you're telling me that i'm hollywood now well okay well um and, and so I was just getting bombarded with all this hate mail and hate mail. And I was like, these are the Death Note fans, you know? And, and then I started thinking about it. I was like, this kind of makes sense. It's like, this is a series where the hero is a guy who writes things down from a distance and kills people and changes the world. And I was like, wait a minute, this is exactly the same as Twitter. Like the people... <laughs> The people who are fans of this are the same people on Twitter who are yelling at me and they're mad. And, and by the way, they got even more mad when they saw the movie. And the reason for that is, is because the movie, I could never take a step into it and make it where the light character who writes names in notebooks and kills people, I could never make him a good guy or even a cool guy. I saw him as a loser and I saw him as a guy that um, had a, um, you know, he, he he was just wrong. You know what I mean? Like you can't just sit down and write things and change the world. That's oh, not he's how a it villain. Is. he's a villain. He totally is. And, and, and I think people identified with him and they probably wanted me to make him more of an obvious villain, but villains don't, you know, come in a cool package all the time. You know, <laughs> he's not a cool guy. He's kind of like a silly dude, you know, and, and, you know, and people always saw Death Note as being like, this is a mastermind, you know, he's this brilliant guy. And I, I was, I kind of took a different route. I was like, let's, let's see what happens if the Death Note ends up with more or less a pretty smart kid, but not like a brilliant kid, you know? Um, but, but Death Note to me is, it's a movie that, 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 that kind of attacks the, the Twitter world and it drove them insane. And they, they drove me off Twitter. I was like, I can't do this. You know, like when you have, you know, multiple people, uh, you know, a day, you know, when the movie was released, like telling you, they hope you die of AIDS. Literally, these are the kind of tweets that you get. Uh -huh. You're just like, what, what is this? Who am I doing this for? You know, I spent two years of my life on this movie, but at the end of the day, I get it. I get it because the movie's kind of trolling, you know, the fans, honestly. And, and, and in retrospect, it's like, what was I expecting to happen? Because I didn't make a movie for the fans. Um, but ultimately the fans kind of drove me away before I even had a chance to. And so uh, I'm still very proud of the film. I, you know, it was a huge step up for me. It was a huge, ex a great experience because it allowed me to make a, um, uh, you know, a, a big budget movie sort of as a practice thing because it was going to Netflix 
there was no kind of, you couldn't really point to it and say it was a success or a failure. So it just felt like I could experiment and do sort of whatever I wanted. Um, you know, but I do want to reiterate because I'm sure this is going to like get out there and, you know, some of the death note fans are going to be furious at me again, but I just want to say like, I'm not even mad that they're mad at me. Like I actually totally understand because I didn't make the movie that they wanted. And I actually feel bad about that because they deserve to have a really good death note movie. And I hope that somebody does it. And I learned a lot from that experience um, so, you know, obviously they had the last laugh and, um, but, uh, fortunately I set up my next movie, Godzilla versus Kong before that came out and, yeah. uh, that, that press didn't hurt me. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know the feeling, you know, when I was making the shining, all of these Kubrick fanatics were just the guy who made critters Two is doing the shining house. <laughs> I mean, we got a lot of shit. Um, the saving grace was Stephen King wrote the script, never yeah. liked the Kubrick film. Um, and was it, a producer. It to be done. Yeah, it really yeah. did. Because, and, and yeah. he, he was given a choice of whatever he wanted to do after The Stand became the highest rated miniseries in history. They yeah. said, what next for you? But we got a lot of hate. I, in particular, got a lot of hate. But, you know, like, but, but, you know, here we are talking about it. And like, like I said, like literally my favorite film of all time is The Shining. And I also love the miniseries, you know, and, and, and it's because they're so different, you know, they, they're doing different, different things. And one is Kubrick's and one is King's. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And Kubrick's is so his movie, you know, and it's, it, and it's, and it's good for completely different reasons um, uh, that, that, that Stephen King's uh, version is. So, yeah, well, I, I want to dig into Kong, uh, Godzilla versus Kong, obviously, but we've got a couple ghost stories we need yes. to hear first. <laughs> okay. So here we are. Like, I, I can't remember how old I was. I want to say I was in, let's just say third grade. Cause I, I can't quite remember. I've been trying to think about it, you know, in the last few years and it was somewhere around there. And, um, you know, uh, it, it kind of all started where, you know, here I am in Marion, Alabama. It's a very small town, um, you know, less, you know, about a thousand something people in the town. And we lived in this really tiny house and my parents one day, um, you know, they got a deal on a place and it was an old Episcopal rectory building. So it was right next door to the church. And for whatever reason, the, the, um, the, uh, the, the priest wasn't living in the rectory. And so the, the church was renting it out for a pretty good deal. And so we, we moved into this thing. But actually, wait, let me back up. Before we moved in, I remember going there to check it out. And when and it was nighttime and uh, we go to this place and inside of the house, they must have done a bug bomb or something in there right before we got there because it was just a carpet of bugs all over this house. Like and bugs I've never seen before. It was literally <laughs> like the sequence in Temple of Doom. Oh, where, great. You know, where it's just a carpet Crunch, of bugs. And I remember like jumping around and trying to get around. They were all dead, but they were just disgusting. <laughs> and and I remember going into the room that was going to be my bedroom. And the first bad sign of this place is I opened the closet and there's literally a dead bird in the closet, Ooh. in a closed closet. How did a dead bird get in there? I have no idea. Anyways, that was kind of weird and creepy. You know, but we we settled into the house. We moved in and it was it was really great for me and my brothers because the house was huge compared to what we were used to. Big, tall ceilings and stuff. Like I said, built in the 1800s. It had, I think it had burned down once. It used to be a two-story house. Now it was a second or just one story when they rebuilt it. 
And the backyard was just a dream for kids, even though it was a cemetery, um, it had this huge hill and it was just so fun to have this gigantic cemetery as a backyard because it was like hide and go seek was like so fun out there. <laughs> you know, you, you could just do so many things. It was really a playground for us as kids. We weren't freaked out by the cemetery aspect to it at all. My friends, when they would visit, were freaked out if they spent the night and stuff. And it was something they would talk to the other kids at school about. But um, but I was never really that afraid of it. But inside of the house, there was always this creepy feeling. And, um, and so you always had this vibe of like somebody's watching you all the time. And, um, and I don't remember talking to my family about it at all, but I always had that feeling. And this one night I'm, uh, I wake up just kind of out of nowhere in the middle of the night and where I'm laying in bed, I'm facing towards a doorway. Right. And I suddenly just get this weird feeling. It's like a, it was like a warm feeling that I had. It was, it was, it was weird. It was, it just started kind of like kind of coming over me. And then suddenly there's a light in the room and this woman appears in the doorway and she's kind of like, I can't remember. She, I, she must've been in her twenties was the vibe that I vaguely remember it now. And, but I do remember that she had an old fashioned dress on and, and she just comes in the room and she's just like, kind of, I remember feeling like she was floating. I couldn't see her feet, but it was a very smooth, very almost movie like kind of thing. Yeah, Very cinematic. Yeah, it, it was, it was like, she faded in, she comes in probably lasted about two seconds and then faded out. And it was just like in a movie, like the way that you would expect it to like kind of fade in and out. And I remember being shocked. Like the first thought I had was I was shocked that I was not terrified because I was always afraid of ghosts up to that point. But my initial reaction was excitement. It was like I, I this warm feeling, it continued. And I just felt like, wow, like exhilarated that I saw this ghost. And then it was only like about a minute or two later that suddenly that warm feeling went away. And then I was terrified because I was like, oh, my God, if I close my eyes again, is something going to appear? You know, and I remember like I couldn't get to sleep for a while. Oh, I love this. Morning, and, and the next morning I told my brother about it and he just didn't believe me. I think he was in denial. And so he just told me it wasn't real. And the second time something happened to me. Um, like it was even weirder because, you know, like I could look back at that story that I just told you and, and say, maybe it has something to do. Maybe it's like a weird offshoot of sleep paralysis I was going through. Maybe it was a hallucination from a dream state that was still kind of flooding over whatever, you know, who knows what it was. Right. But this other story I can't explain off as easy and it wasn't a visual one, but it was actually scarier. Because, um, you know, there was this one day where my uh, my parents and my brothers, they were all in a Little League game. So I was home alone. And I remember I was sitting on my couch drawing because I used to want to be a comic book artist um, in addition to film. You know, so I used to always draw these comic book characters that I would make up. And um, so I'm sitting there kind of like cross-legged on the couch, my feet up on the cushion. And I just got off the phone with my friend and suddenly the couch just slides forward like two or three feet, just and like, you know, I instantly jump up like terrified because the couch was up against a window and the window at one point had um, my brother put his elbow through it. And so for the longest time, there was this crappy patch over the window. And so I thought, oh, my God, somebody just reached in and just pushed the couch, which was terrifying in and of itself. But then I looked back and remembered, wait a minute, we just repaired that window. It's totally fine. So what just happened? And so I go, okay, and 
push the couch back over to the window or to where it was. It was kind of on an air vent. So I, was, I started like justifying it to myself like, oh yeah, like, uh, like the air vent somehow, you know, moves the couch three or few forward. And so I'm sitting there and not a few minutes pass and suddenly the power goes out. And this house was out in the middle of nowhere. And so when the power went out, you could not see your hand in front of your face. It was terrifying. It was like pitch black. And I just panic. Like, what do I do? I'm like, okay, I got to get a flashlight. And it's like, I don't know where the flashlights are and I can't see anything in the house. And so the only thing I could think to do was to stumble my way through the house to the backyard where we had about six you know, dogs that would just like sleep outside on our porch. And so I made my way to the back porch and found the dogs. And I sat there with the dogs for about half an hour until finally my parents arrived. And as soon as they got there, the power came back on the house. And so that was freaky. And so I didn't really talk to my mom about any of this stuff uh, for years, you know, and it was only like maybe like 10 years ago. I remember telling my mom, like, you know, uh, did you ever have, you know, any weird stuff happen to you in the house? Because, you know, and I, I told her some of my stories and she said, actually, this would happen. This one thing would happen to me all the time where she said she would be asleep in bed and she would hear the sound. It sounded like us kids running up and down the hallway and she said she would get up and she would go into the hall nobody would be there and she'd go to our rooms and we would be all dead asleep in the bed you know and so i thought oh thank god it's it's not just me you know <laughs> okay, well, that, that's the next film is the Wingard home in alabama yeah. <laughs> Tell you, I do want to make a really good ghost movie one day. You know, I just have to find the right story because I've got the experiences, right? <laughs> well, the things that influenced you as a kid were the spectacles, the big ones. Um, you started out really small. Each movie was a step larger and a step larger. Now you're about to jump into the volcano. <laughs> Godzilla versus Kong. Half of, more than half of the movie is digital. Um, so many of the shots, there are very few shots that are actually just photographing people in places doing things. That's right. They are digitally abetted. There's animation throughout. So how do you make this change from very practical cinematography and, and production to basically shooting a green screen or just shooting animation? Well, I, I think luckily because I had made Death Note, that gave me just enough experience and confidence with CGI um, that I had at least some a little bit of firsthand knowledge about how it worked and what to expect. It wasn't a ton, but it was just enough. And um, funny enough, like I, I almost ended up doing um, uh, Skull Island back in 2014 or so because uh, Peter Jackson had somehow seen Your Next early. And he was actually initially interested in me uh, directing um, the sequel to his King Kong film. And I've been to the original, the real Isla Calavera. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and here's the thing, like when he approached me for that, that was like an offer you couldn't refuse. Yeah. Um, But then the, the film, it was set up at Universal at the time and it ended up going away to Warner Brothers. And so when he, when that happened, he went away and I went away with it. But I remember being very relieved at that point because that, and then I'd only done the guest. I, I just finished the guest, was in post-production when this happened. And 
And I remember just being like, I, I just, I'm not ready. I'm not in my headspace. I don't know anything about VFX. And, um, and, and honestly, it just wasn't the type of film that I was, I would have done it because it was a huge opportunity for me. Sure. Um, but I don't know that it, I would have been ready. I was still getting comfortable just making normal movies with crews. You weren't next. Yeah. No. So in a weird way that, that kind of, that was serendipitous that worked out and, you know, but here I am on Godzilla versus Kong and I've got just enough experience. And what I, what I, what I was excited about with Godzilla versus Kong was that, like I said, like the movies that got me excited about wanting to be a filmmaker in the first place were always these big sci-fi films. And so for the first time ever, now I could finally, um, you know, do a film where we weren't backing, backing into the movie budget first, you know, when we're doing your next and the guest, we're saying, okay, this is what we can afford, you know? So, you know, wouldn't it be great if a helicopter could land here, but we know that's not going to happen. So don't even think about it. And when you're doing a movie like Godzilla versus Kong, you know, there's been so many Godzilla movies. There's been so many Kong films and that, you know, so the, the, the thing that the studio is immediately encouraging you to do is we have to see things that we've never seen before. We need to see new environments and we need most importantly to see Godzilla and Kong in ways and places doing things that we've never seen before. And so that's great marching orders because that just opens the door, you know, it's like, okay, we got to see things that we've never seen before. So, you know, like what, what is that? And um, right away, I knew that I wanted to get into the, you know, I wanted to see what Godzilla would look like surrounded by colorful neon. I wanted to see what that looked like reflecting off of his scales. I knew I wanted the big, battle sequence to be you know in in a neon kind of futuristic akira style city um but you know the the i think the thing is is when you're directing these films is you you sort of have to approach it like you're kind of alluding to like a like an animated movie you know like because there's you know even though some of these environments look, you know, photorealistic, most of them are not real, you know, like the monsters are too big to do any other way than, you know, CG. And, the, and so the environments a lot of time end up being fully CG. So you're kind of making these animated movies, which, which is really fun because that means the, the sky's the limit. And, you know, finally I can kind of think in those terms, um, you know, and do, and just, just do what, what comes to mind, you know? Well, there's a long history of monster mashups. I mean, uh, well, first of all, in 1966, Universal's biggest grossing movie was King Kong versus Godzilla, mm -hmm. which is kind of amazing. It was an import, but uh, but it became their most successful movie of the year. But we go back to Frankenstein versus the Wolfman and House of Dracula and House of Frankenstein, where you've got Frankenstein and Dracula and Wolfman and all of these mad scientists and the like. You've got Freddy versus Jason. You've got mm -hmm. Alien versus Predator. But yours actually has a history of Godzilla versus Kong. Right. Did, did you actually go back and watch the original Universal picture? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I mean, the first thing I did when I was talking to Legendary about the potential of making this film is I went back and watched every single Godzilla film in chronological order in just a couple of days. I just sat down and did them all. I also did the King Kong movies. I skipped a couple of King Kongs, I will confess. I didn't watch the Linda Hamilton sequel thing and I didn't watch yeah. Kong, but- Kong, uh, yeah. But uh, but but that was also because I just gotten done on the thrill ride of, uh, of going through all the Godzilla movies. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and that was really a, a great experience for me because what what it did is it was it was almost like a time warp because a lot of those films I hadn't seen since daytime television, you know, being home before even kindergarten, and so you know there the, it it was like 
it was such an important experience for me to relive that because watching it again in 2017, it was like I said, like the, since the, the time before that was when I would have been a, a little kid, I was able to just suddenly like I was getting like these flashbacks, I guess is what it was of what the experience was was when I saw it as a kid. Like, for instance, there was a scene that always stuck with me from the original films where Godzilla's in a pit and mud is getting tossed on top of them. And it scared me so bad when I was a kid because it was so intense. And um, and when I watched these films again, it turns out that that was Godzilla versus the smog monster. And I had no idea until I revisited it. Um, so that was really interesting to just go back and kind of rekindle that kind of childhood kind of feeling. But the thing about King Kong versus Godzilla, the original, um, that one always resonated with me since second grade, because I can remember being on the playground with my friends. And, um, and I remember for whatever reason, this one day, everybody was talking about Godzilla and King Kong. It must have been on TV the night before or something like that. And everybody was arguing who would win in the fight. And I remember that my best friend, he he thought who, who would win was one. And I had a completely different idea. And I just couldn't believe who he thought would win the fight. I just thought that made no sense at all, you know? And so we argued about it. But if you think about that, that's really interesting because we're arguing about who would win in a fight, Godzilla or Kong. But there's a movie that exists where they actually fight. But the problem with that movie is that it doesn't pick a side. It, it's very interpretational at the end. Like, it, it, you know, you know, kind of one of them wins, but you don't really know. And it, it's kind of weird, right? And so it, that movie didn't solve any of those arguments for the kids. So, you know, the second that it, Legendary told me that they were, you know, developing Godzilla versus Kong, I thought, well, I know exactly who's winning. And it has not changed since I was a kid. And also, <laughs> you, got, you got your yeah. chance to tell the story. Exactly. Now I can finally win that argument from second grade. <laughs> finally, the, the pettiness will be, you know, um, but, uh, you know, I, I knew going into this, though, like it was really important that whoever directed this film, the most important thing is that there's a perspective that um, the audience will forgive which side you pick, but they will not forgive if you leave it in a draw, you know, because it'll just feel like no decision was made. And so I knew that and that I had total confidence in that going into it. And that was actually the easiest part of the film. That was the thing that I came in. I knew who it should be. Luckily, it lined up with, I guess, the studio. I don't know if I'd gone in a different direction if, you know, if they would have if, if if it would have worked. I don't know. But, but the, they, the fact of the matter is, yeah. yeah, it just was never an argument. So we were just on the same page. And um and, you know, so it's funny because you would think that that would be the hardest thing because it's called Godzilla versus Kong. But it turns out that was uh, that was the easiest. That was the easiest part. The, the hardest part is dealing with all the uh, plot mechanics. You know, it's a sequel. It's it, it needs to be a standalone film. You know, you've got all these uh, characters and, you know, and you need to get Kong and Godzilla and all these places. And you have to set up the state of the world and you have to do it in the most efficient way possible, you know, because I, I knew I wanted this film to be so densely entertaining. I didn't want it to be a bloated blockbuster. I knew I wanted it to be around two hours. And and that was my goal from the get-go. And, and to do that, you know, you have to be just so efficient with the timing. And the first 30 minutes, I probably spent more agonizing over, you know, uh, in the pre-production, post-production, every aspect of it. That was the hardest part to nail down because it's all the 
the exposition and the setup and all that stuff. The and machinery, yeah, kicking it, in. Exactly. And, you know, it's like I came on board this film to play with the big toys. I wanted to play, I wanted to do Godzilla versus Kong. But to do that, you know, you, you, the thing that you're really signing on for is, you know, it's not just that. It's how to how to get you, get the audience there and and, and to, to hit all the sweet spot with those things. And it, but very- even a bigger job is dealing with a cast in circumstances where they're mostly in front of a green screen. How did you manage to get them to understand the interaction with what wasn't there? Yeah, well, you know, it's surprisingly not as tricky as you think, because when you have good actors, you know, they're great actors, so they can use their imagination. You know, a lot of times you're using things like laser pointers so that they have their eye line. And so there's something they can directly follow. And even though I'm sure they felt like cats sometimes, you know, having to look around. But, um, you know, and I and and we had a PA system that was hooked up to my uh, phone so I could play sound effects and stuff. I could play monster roars if I needed violent reactions from them. Sometimes I would play music to help give them, they could almost do like an interpretive acting thing to the music and and, and that kind of thing. But um, the, one of the challenges actually, which, which was never really as hard as you would think, but one of the actors, uh, Kaylee Hoddle, she, she's, she's actually deaf in real life and she plays a deaf character. And um and so, you know, sometimes you you have sequences where, like, for instance, there's a scene where all the characters, including uh, uh, Kaylee, are running onto the um, the the uh, the bridge of the ship, and Kong is outside and he's freaking out. And there's a moment where, as they're running in, the ship shakes and everybody like falls over, you know. And, uh, and, you know, for everybody on the crew, the way to do that, it's very simple. You know, the camera operator is waiting for the cue. The actors are all waiting and you got your first AD there. And he says, one, two, three, boom. And when he says, boom, everybody does their Star Trek, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> and, um, and so the, but with, you know, cause Kaylee couldn't hear that the way that we, we, we would, uh, handle that would be, um, always and you can kind of see it in the film if you're looking for it but like there's like uh, we always had somebody kind of nearby and like in that one rebecca hall is right beside her and rebecca hall just kind of has her hand on her back as they're running and as soon as they say it she kind of just gives her a little tap and then kaylee knows to do it as well and it's and you can if you look at in the film she's i think kaylee's maybe like you know, like just a little bit behind everybody else. But it, 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 it's it's funny because you would think with like a big budget movie like this, you'd have some like insane rig or some kind that would, you know, do An this. Electronic platform, device. Yeah. yeah, it's all old school stuff still. So, <laughs> Well, we've got to wrap it up. But this comes at a time in Warner Brothers history where they're working out HBO Max, dealing with a pandemic, in distributing their films. All of the films that were intended for theaters for 2020 were, are going to HBO Max. So a huge portion of your audience is gonna see it on HBO Max. What were the conversations like when, when they gave you the news that, look, you're gonna debut on HBO Max simultaneously with whatever theaters are open? Well, you know, I mean, I'm sure you saw the all the the news stories that came out. Like, there was no conversation was the problem. They literally didn't tell anybody that was involved with it. 
Um, the way I found out about it was exactly the same way that James Gunn and everybody else found out about their movies being put to HBO Max, which was there was a press release put out about it. And um, and by the way, this happened on December 3rd, uh, which is my birthday. So I was literally driving, you it's know, the day before mine, by the way. Oh, really? Well, see, that's why we have so much in common, because you yeah, know, there we go. Sagittarius <laughs> is, you know, Um but, uh, you know, I remember I was driving out to Las Vegas and I was just going to spend the night there and um, with a friend of mine. And, uh, you know, here I am driving out there on my birthday, just trying to have a good time. And suddenly I get this text from my uh, agent. He says, immediately incoming, you know, major announcement, HBO Max is going to uh, send their movies uh, to streaming and theatrical day and date or something like that. Right. I thought, what? You know, and then I, 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 I immediately just Googled HBO Max, and they and like 30 seconds later, the story hit. It was like that was the warning that I had for it. Wow. And so I was devastated, you know, like because here I am, this is my big, you know, big movie, literally the biggest movie I could possibly imagine making, you know, with Godzilla and King Kong. It's made for the big screen. And, you know, here we are being told, okay, it's going to go to HBO Max and theaters. And so initially I was devastated. I was very depressed for, you know, a little while. At the same time, it's like, you know, I get it, you know, it's like the pandemic and, you know, it's, it's crazy circumstances, but the way they handled it was kind of weird. And, you know, and, and it took a while to work all that out with them and we eventually landed somewhere, but the, um, sorry, this made my door, but uh, the, uh, but, but, but kind of the turning point for me was when the movie, uh, the trailer came out and, um, and that was in mid-January. And when the trailer came out, immediately what you saw online was all these people posting their reaction videos. And when I saw these reaction videos, people were watching the, the trailer on their laptops and they're just losing their minds. They're having a blast, you know? All this pent up energy from the pandemic of not having these big blockbuster movies, everybody was just unleashing it on this trailer. And some of the reaction videos were people filming themselves watching the trailer on their uh, iPhones. And they were having the exact same reaction as everybody else. And I thought, you know what? It's going to be all right because ultimately it's like people just need this movie. They need movies like this and, and they're going to enjoy it no matter how they see it. You know, it's like all, a lot of my favorite movies are movies that came out before I was born and I haven't seen in the theaters and I love them just the same. So if the movie's going to stand up, it's going to stand up one way or the other. It's like, you know, so I, I kind of just let it go at that point and I've been having fun ever since then. <laughs> That's the best attitude and the only attitude you can take. Adam Wingard, thank you so much for spending time on the slab with us and good luck and uh, hope to see you again soon. Thank you. It's been a total pleasure. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. 
Each bottle of Quest Ice Coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest Ice Coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.